Sea to Sky, episode 36. Sorry if it seems like I'm a little downtrodden or I sound a little off and a little low. I don't know, I've been getting beaten around as of late, both mentally and physically, due to the amount of hockey that's been reintroduced into my life. Considering that the amount of games that I've been watching the Vancouver Canucks go through over the past couple of weeks has definitely left a bit of a sour taste on my mouth, considering that we have possibly been taken to our wits' end. We have conceded our seventh worst start to the season in franchise history, considering that we are just cruising along at a current, I believe, 6-12-2 record, with a winning average only covering 30% of our games. It's definitely been a little bit of a trial going over the past couple of weeks, considering that nobody knows essentially what's wrong in the sense that should we essentially get rid of the major GMs and the opposing figures? Is it the ownership? Is it the lack of communication between the players? Is the lack of communication between the players and the organization? Or is it related to a bit of internal strife going on inside of the locker room? Or is it unfortunately all the above? And the current organization definitely has something rotten at its core that is going to be taking years to essentially recover from, even after we were shown a brief glimpse of hope with our 2019 run getting a lot farther than we should have, honestly. But now we're kind of just dealing with the consequences of not only being less of a mediocre team, but one of the worst teams in the NHL. And my body has definitely been feeling it, considering that at least just the other day I ended up finally jumping back on and playing a game of hockey myself and skating on the ice for the first time in over two years, considering that now that the vaccine passports have been rolling out and double vaccinations have been covering at least, I think, around 90% in BC at the minimum, we're finally able to go through and start opening up so many of our own uh, recreational activities and get-togethers and just sports leagues in general. So it's been nice to kind of see those slowly opening back up now that we've been able to go through and kind of get these activities back into our schedule. And it's really been a good distraction and a good thing to fit back in just to at least get me active in particular so I can find a couple of things to do to not only get some exercise, but to get out and meet some new people. <sighs> but enough about hockey, this hockey, that. I guess we should try and go back and see what essentially has been happening in anime over the past couple of weeks, because to be fair, not a lot. I mean, in terms of the rock band and the J-rock symptoms that have been coming in as of late, the rock band Ali finally returns from hiatus after the arrest of their drummer over a year ago. Considering that these were the guys that uh, made the major th- songs for B-Stars, Jujutsu Kaisen, Noblesse, and in particular for the Crunchyroll Anime Awards, they took home the best opening and best ending for last year's awards. And then unfortunately, their drummer, Hakatahito, on April 4th was alleged special fraud charges, and then according to investigators, Katahito received cash from ATMs as part of a scam operation that he was helping to run. So now they have come out of their hiatus, and I'm legitimately curious to see what they're going to be moving on for the rest of it, considering that the majority of the OPs and EDs that they put out over the past two years before they ended up going on hiatus uh, was honestly, like, definitely more than average, and um, well above the majority of the stuff that had been coming out over the past year. But besides that, um, the OVA that has been going through and finally passing their stretch goals, and we're getting a little bit more information on it, considering that it recently ended up getting an English subtitle trailer released worldwide, is The Girl from the Other Side. And so this was originally a short that was produced by Wit Studio, and considering that they made a 10-minute anime adaptation of the manga that premiered at Fantasia Festival in Montreal in August 2019, they were finally able to go through and reach their stretch goal for the OAD that they were able to promise if the fan base that was well then enough interested in the source material as well as the 10-minute short that they were able to produce initially, well... It definitely seems at that point in time that they were able to get what they wanted, considering that they were able to work well past their stretch goal to make an additional bonus short that is going to be coming out sometime next year. And so it is going to be a feature-length film based on the comics that were released back in 2015. And I'm legitimately curious to see how they've been going out, considering that Studio Wid has definitely been working well along the storybook aesthetic for the majority of their projects that they've had over the past two years. Now that they've finally been lifted of the weight and the shackles of the Attack on Titan adaptation that they've been going through over the past several years, 
Now they've been able to jump into different kinds of projects that they've been able to go through and decide to partake on their own. In case that ones that happening this season that I haven't been able to start yet, but I will try and cover it by the end of the season, which is Osama Ranking, or King's Ranking, has been getting nothing but positive praise over the past couple of weeks now that it's more than halfway through its seasonal run. And the storybook aesthetic that they were able to produce not only for the 10 minute short here, but especially through what they were able to show inside of the preview for the OAD, they've been really nailing this aesthetic as of late, so I'm really curious to see how this is going to translate when it becomes more of a feature-length project rather than a short story. And at least over this month, the majority of the shows that have been garnering uh, the highest television rankings throughout the majority of Japanese network television, they've been finally able to go through not only different series, but as well as different video games, as well as the top-selling manga and light novels of the past year. So at least for television, basically standard, uh, like Japanese Family Fair, like Sezai-san, Chibiki, Maruko-chan, and Detective Conan are the ones that are sitting at top of the ratings. But then, of course, right after that, you've got the Demon Slayer Lugan Train Arc uh, television series that's airing now, leading after Doraemon, One Piece, and then surprisingly enough, you end up getting Yashihime, or Inuyasha's second act, with uh, the Princess Half-Demon adaptation of the sequel series. And then of course you've got another family-oriented comedy, Crayon Shinchan, and then leading into Lupin the Third Part Six, and then finally, surprisingly enough to me, is Tropical Rouge Precure. And so Precure is definitely one of those Magical Girl series that I'm curious about, but considering that there are so many adaptations that there isn't an easy jump-off point, at least like on the outside looking in. Considering that the first time I ever saw like anything Precure related get any sort of notoriety was that out of nowhere, the jury from our anime's uh, 2019 Anime Awards just unanimously just went through, oh yeah, no, Hug 2 Precure is the best show of 2019 in a year that was filled with amazing series, including the second uh, part of Attack on Titan's third season, you had Mob Psycho's second season, Vinland Saga, Demon Slayer, Kaguya-sama Love is War, Run with the Wind, the first season of Beastars, Zoku Owari Monogatari, which is one of the final renditions of the Monogatari series, and then as well as Symphogear. And hilariously enough that the public ranked Hug2 as their, like, least likely pick for that to go through, the jury just unanimously was like, oh yeah, no, like, fuck this, Hug2 Precure is like miles and away the best show of the year. And it's like, whoa, very interesting. And then leading into like a handful of like Canadian podcasts that I've been listening to that Precure has had more than a decade long like running history on both television as well as anime streaming services alike, I guess at some point in time I'm actually going to have to give this a try. But then moving on to video games, we end up getting those that have been sitting in the top 20 from November of this year. You've got stuff like Call of Duty Vanguard, Dragon Quest X, Ring Fit Adventure, Mario Party Superstars, Shimagami Tensei V, Pokemon Sword and Shield, The Yuru Camp. I don't necessarily know what to call it. It's not a visual novel. It's not, I guess it's an interactive sort of deal that they've been able to go through, but that's like reached the top 20, which is legitimately surprising for me. But then, of course, you've got the Demon Slayer adaptation for the video game. You've got the Fortnite Legends pack that they recently introduced back in uh, November 2nd. And, you know, the standard Minecraft, Mario Kart 8, Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, like just the majority of the stuff that's been going through. And definitely the Nintendo Switch because of how portable and how easy it is to take on the train, take on the go, wherever it decides to go. That's definitely one of the major things that gets it the consumer points whenever people are essentially trying to find something new uh, to jump into and play. So yeah, it's definitely been kind of interesting, and there. but you're not really going to be getting too many interesting titles like coming through of the top-selling uh, Japan from this... Uh, the, from the top-selling manga from Japan of this year, considering that, like, easily, Jujutsu Kaisen takes the number one, easy, and at a ridiculous 30.9 million copies sold. And I understand that it incorporates all the volumes that ended up gets being sold over the course of this year, but it's like, that is a lot, considering that One Piece is only in the top 10 of that, and it's not even in the top 5. Because right after that, you've got Demon Slayer at 29.5 million, and then leading in Tokyo Revengers at 24.9, which is honestly the one that is the weirdest to me initially, because it's it seems like through clips, or through at least popularity in the West, you don't necessarily see too much like hype surrounding it. 
other than the people that have stuck around for like the long haul in this series that say it gets good in the long run but to be fair it does it does take me quite a bit to actually involve myself into a series like that but then it's like the jump is absolutely massive coming in at number four with the, its conclusion running through and finally finishing up the manga story attack on titans manga finally ends up coming to a close and still like reaches the upper echelon at that point even though it didn't even break eight figures, which is absolutely ridiculous with the gap between the top three and everything else below it. And then, of course, right after that, you've got My Hero Academia, which over the course of this year has been a huge whiplash in terms of uh, my relationship and experience with the show, considering that everything that happened after the major arc that everybody is going to be able to experience in season six, after that happened... I was really interested in where the show was at the time and and how where Deku was, um, what essentially his conflicts were and the trials that he is going to have to go through after all the fallout of the previous events of um, season six and the previous arc. But then the arc that happens after that one concludes was just like really off or at least the introduction of like new characters and completely and utterly breaking the power ceiling that ends up going through, which I understand they do dial back, but it was like for a number of weeks, it was just wait. So there's absolutely no way that we can win this fight. There's absolutely no, like the villain is just that strong and there's absolutely no way that we're going to be able to come back to this. Let's go. Like, oh yeah, no, we'll be able to like retcon that and do like something else that goes through. And it's like, I guess the only way that that happened is that Horikoshi must have, like, had this in the back pocket. And, like, he had one cool move that he wanted to execute, but it was so fucking ridiculous that it would have absolutely broken the rules of the world completely wide open. And even though he was able to dial it back immediately after, it was like, what the hell was this? Like, what the hell? I understand it's cool. I understand it's a devastating power move, but it was like, if you didn't do what you did afterwards, it's like there was no way that you would have been able to like reel back the absolute state of the conflicts and felt like there was anything more that we could have done to like win this fight because it would have been over. But um, yeah, no, it's right now it did leave on a cliffhanger, which I'm really curious to see how they're going to translate into the next coming arc. But I don't know. I'm really going to have to see... Because there hasn't really been much of a fallout. There hasn't really been just anything that smoothly transitioned us between the arcs. Since I don't know, it's been really awkward. I really don't know what to say. I'm just I'm at a I'm at a loss. I'm definitely curious, but I'm kind of disappointed at least in the couple of weeks that we went through. And speaking of disappointment, we finally get to this week's topic and going through the second part, considering that everybody knew it was coming here. Uh, but the question is, what I was able to think and what my final verdict and opinion was for the live-action adaptation of the Cowboy Bebop series. And there will be spoilers ahead. And I guess I'll get to the point. I do have some issues. A few issues. But I think, leading into it, I didn't necessarily know how this was going to have any positive outcome, considering that the ultimate goal from this is to not only, you know, give some sort of satisfaction or callback to the original fans of the series based on how massively popular and how influential this show has been over the past, like, 20-plus years, but then also give it its own spin and its own style so that anybody getting into this for the first time can actually be invested and interested in this world and at the end of the day figure out where this all came from like point it into the direction of the original series and get people legitimately interested in what this world had to offer and unfortunately i don't think it did that i don't think this was good for people getting into it and what having it be their first time viewing or bringing people back into it who loved the original series because it's like there's there's so many different directions that i can go to to like, figure out what went wrong when a lot of it went wrong in the first place, like, before they even got it off the ground. It's just incredibly awkward to try and figure out how any of this was going to translate to live action. And it was just, I think I'll, I think I'll start at step one or episode one, literally the first scene, which they basically do a rendition of the opening of the film, which is just Spike and Jet end up trying to get the drop on these crooks who are trying to steal money from an establishment 
and they basically try and figure a way to break break in, take all the guys out, and end up collecting the bounties. And in the movie, they did this exceptionally well. They did it relatively quickly. It was like, let's just say that the first section of the live action was eight minutes, and the first section of the movie was four minutes. And in those four minutes, you get the relationship between Jet and Spike. You get the, like, fanatical mumbo-jumbo that the guy who ended up getting laid off by his own company, you realize why he's doing it, you realize how he's doing it, you realize why he's targeting these specific convenience stores in the first place. Even though he's, like, monologuing about some really pointless shit, which is basically what makes a good stew... He's still, like, at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, no, it's pointless. Like, a good stew mix is what makes a good stew. It's like, yeah, no, we understand. Like, there's literally nothing coming out of it. You're just trying to make small talk as you're, like, slowly draining this, uh, you're slowly draining the money out of the register that you're ending up stealing from. And the rule of cool, how Spike ends up dispatching all the majority of the guys inside of the convenience store was, like, really slick, really cool. He was able to surprise his opponent he was able to counter his opponent and then like do an insult to injury by by pouring like hot coffee on him they go through he ends up dispatching one of the guys jet jumps through the ceiling dispatches number three and then number four comes out of the washroom after taking a shit and immediately takes an old woman hostage and holds her at gunpoint and then immediately Spike is more irked about the fact that Jet let one of them go, and he's more irked about, like, Jet's info than he is about the fact that a woman has been taken hostage. And he just doesn't care, and he points the gun at number four, and and number four threatens him, and the old lady makes a fuss, and he ends up shooting number four in the arm, dispatching him well, where he ends up losing his gun and gets knocked unconscious. Which then leads to a really good exchange between the old woman and Spike being, he called you a cowboy. What did he mean? What are you? Leading to one of the most smooth intro deliveries out of any main character in cinema where it's just, he's just a humble bounty hunter, ma'am. And it was perfect. And like, how they were able to do like that small of a conflict and resolve it like that quickly and that succinctly in four minutes was amazing. Now they do the exact same thing in the live action version. The effects in this, I don't, like, I don't even know what the Netflix's deal is because I don't know how much money they decided to include into this on top of the fact that they decided to advertise the hell out of it on their own site. But it's like they must have put in enough money to get the licensing to even get the show off the ground in the first place, but it never shows how, like, it. none of it is shown, like, done... Ugh, it's it I don't know it it looks cheap in the majority of the places it looks very quick it looks just really awkward anything revolving space anything revolving around any of the spaceships anything revolving around something that isn't a basic bare bones fight scene just doesn't look at all like it should the only times any of the vistas look good is when you know, Spike is on either Callisto or Mars, and those are relatively good, considering that everything that takes place on any other planet just looks incredibly fucking jank, and that it's, like, led out of an 80s or 90s, like, Blazing Saddles, like, Western pop-up shops, and, like, literally towns that are literally made out of flat, painted-on buildings that don't exist, and it's just, like, taken out of a lot in anywhere where it was shot in New Zealand. And just, like, leading on to the first, like, part of the live action where it was just all of the effects look cheap. Like, how Jet drops through the ceiling, how Spike and Jet fly through the air. It's almost like you can see the wires that are pulling them up as they're being guided and trying to get sucked out of the hole that's been created in this space casino. Where it's, and it, like, and the same, and they do every single beat except the new beats that, like, it's... It sums up the entire thing. They follow, whenever they follow it beat for beat for the original series, they don't do it correctly. And when they try and introduce something new that they try to make original and how it fits, it just completely throws everything out of the window. All of the tension, all of the comedy, all of the, like, legitimate stakes that are being held up in the conflict, none of it just stay, none of it just sits and none of it makes sense. 
I don't know, dudes being like spouting about out about corporations when if whoever decided to like write that dialogue into into the room where it's just kind of like, yeah, the only reason this entire fucking show got off the ground was because of corporations. So if you wanted to do something where it's like, oh, we're taking one to the big the big co's and it's just dude, you're fucking not. There's absolutely nothing that's related to like this in any semblance. And it's not a cool line and it's not a cool like conflict. Nothing about this lets us like bring any of the like any of the stakes into our world. And the fact that you're trying to relate it to our world is completely missing the point. And it's like the one rule of cool thing that Spike does in this entire scene is that he flips a casino token up in the air and jumps and does a side kick and hits the main dude in the forehead and it knocks him backwards. And it's like, I get it. On paper, that sounds cool. In execution, all the execution inside of the series is just completely, like, off-kilter and hopeless. Like, no, like nothing related to that scene made any, like, maybe either laugh. Like, all I could do was laugh. All I could do was laugh. A buddy of mine basically just described this as Harold acquires a lethal weapon in space. Like, that's basically it. Just, like, just the, the basic banter that goes off between Spike and Jet is just so reminiscent of fucking lethal weapon that it just, like, kind of tilts me in more ways than one, and how that kind of lays it. Also, the Dutch angles, like, dude, I don't know who taught the director here Dutch angles, but, like, holy shit, you can't make it every third scene where the camera's tilted. Like, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't set up, and it doesn't add the kind of effect that you want when you do it, like, a third of the time. Basically, everything that they introduce new and fleshed out and they tried to make their own stamp on this franchise... The vast majority of it falls on its face, and any time they try and reenact or bring up old stories and plot beats from the original episodes, they fuck the majority of those up as well. So unfortunately, the biggest loss out of all this entire series is that there is this word called subtlety, and nobody in the writer's room, nobody in the directorial chair, nobody on the production staff had any idea what subtlety was. Like, nothing at all. We are going to tell you Every single detail that revolves around the series, that revolves around the ship, that revolves around Spike's past, Faye's past, Jet's past, Vicious's past, Julia's past, Pierre LeFou's past. Like, literally every character that gets brought on, except for, like, one or two minor side characters, it's like, why do they act this way? Oh, well, let me explain to you in detail how why they act this way and what essentially brought them to this point in their lives. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake. Like, we can't just do it on our own. Like, you literally just can't put any agency in the hands of the audience to kind of think for themselves and actually give them the opportunity to figure out their own conclusions for anything that happens in the series. It's like, no. Subtlety does not exist in this world. I was able to go through 10 of these episodes in five days. Thank Christ that this, only this year, I realized that playback speed doesn't have to be set at one permanently. Because there are there have been a handful of series that I've watched this year that, thank God, I can dial up to either 1.25 or 1.5 just to get this out of the way. Unfortunately, Cowboy Bebop was one of them. And I cranked that shit all the way up to 1.5 because there was no way I would be able to get through any of this at regular speed. I don't think I would have been able to get through the fight scenes. I don't think I would have been able to get through the dialogue. I don't think I would have been able to get through any of these scenarios if not for the fact I was able to blitz through these at like a little bit of a faster pace because it would have been so goddamn slow in the other case. In this case, we end up getting the first two episodes, which is Cowboy Gospel and Venus Pop. So Cowboy Gospel is basically the opening for the original uh, movie and the first episode of the original television series. And then for some reason, Faye is there. It is a... So I guess, let's see, if it was a 50-minute episode with an 8-minute opening and then you take out the majority of the openings and endings, then you basically got just about 40 minutes. And they say, and they tell the exact same story of the original first episode of the original series in twice the amount of time. And it is less for it. There is absolutely nothing that this series gains stretching out any of these original plot points to the degree that they feel like they could add a little more to it. And they don't really do that. And all of the little, like, switches that they're able to bring in where it's like, okay, I guess the syndicate is already on Spike's ass on episode one. And it's like, okay, 
Asimov's gonna not going to get killed by his wife. He's going to get killed by some random shot. And I don't even remember if it was fucking Jet or Faye that ended up, like, shooting him. But it was like, okay, well, sorry. Asimov's just going to die, and we're going to get the exact same scene from the original series. But something that is so much less emotionally poignant that you're just kind of like, oh, wow, that, that looks cool. Okay, well, it's going to look cooler in the animated series, so you might as well just go back and watch that. Episode 2, we end up getting the Teddy Bomber on Venus, an original plot point set up with the relationship between Vicious and Julia. I will get to that. The biggest loss, one of the biggest losses that we ended up taking that we know is not going to get brought back into the original series is that, well, they referenced Cowboy Andy as being a bounty hunter in this area, but we've already covered the Teddy, the teddy Bomber shtick. And it's like, well, maybe they'll be able to introduce Cowboy Andy at some point in time in the second season. Because, great, that's basically what's going to happen. We're going to be getting a second season, whether we like it or not. But, if we're going to go through characters, let me introduce to you Vicious. Or, as I add on to his last name, Vicious Malfoy. Because I'm trying to think of a more pathetic excuse for an antagonist than the live-action Cowboy Bebop Vicious. He looks... Somebody pointed out where he looks like a sweaty Sephiroth cosplayer who wasn't able to get the wig right. And it definitely shows. Because it was just like... Vicious didn't have a lot of moments to shine inside the original series. Like, he was arguably in only five episodes. Barely in... Barely in two of them. And, like, every time he's on screen, you know this guy's bad news. Like, he axes major heads of the syndicate like he's nothing. He ends up just completely throwing any sort of empathy and humanity way back in the dust and is completely abhorrent towards anybody except his own men unless they decide to switch sides. Otherwise, you're a dead man. It's just that every single time that he came on screen, you knew this man was trouble. Regardless, where it was like, even if you knew him from his initial thing where he's like, oh, I'm I'm really dark and I'm really trying to be brooding in this hell of a moment and I'm going through the majority of this opera play and I'm not going to react to it and you want to know my name, honey? It's vicious. And like on, on paper, that sounds incredibly fucking campy and over the top. But when he says it, and you see the fear on Faye's face when you see them go eye to eye. It's like, you're creeped out by this guy in the worst way. And not a way that's funny, in a way that's legitimately terrifying. Because you know this man will fuck up anything that gets in his path. Whether it's power, whether it's money, whether it's notoriety. He will mess you the fuck up if you end up inhibiting him in any way, shape, or form. Vicious Malfoy is... A daddy's boy. And a spoiled child. And he's got a silver spoon up his ass. And it doesn't seem like he can do anything right until episode 8. But everything leading up to that, every single time Vicious is on screen in the live-action version, every single time Malfoy decides to try and open his big fucking mouth to try and seem imposing, to try and seem threatening, to try and put any semblance of just ruggedness or ravenous hunger and rage behind his voice, he comes across like a little boy who just got smacked across the face because he was acting naughty in front of his parents. Which is a thing, because Live Action Vicious is the son of one of the heads of the syndicate, and it just adds nothing. It adds nothing to the story. Because it's like, oh, we're going to make, we're, we're going to show you in episode 8 that he kills his own father, but then we're going to explain to you why he killed his father in the first place in episode 9, with one of the only original, like, moments in the entire series. Because apparently, like, at the end of episode 1, it's just Vicious and Julia are married, and they make out on top of a convertible car. And it's like, what the fuck is this? Because it's like, in the second episode, when we see Vicious... And he's being, like, taken under the foot of the elders. And it's like, you crossed the line. You now need to kill your wife, who is Julia. And this was a mock test because the gun wasn't loaded. And if you ever do this again, we're going to make sure that there's going to be a bullet in that magazine the next time. It's like, yeah, great. If Vicious had any semblance 
of the original in him, he would literally just fucking kill every major agent in that room and, like, just walk up to the elders with a loaded gun and essentially try and fucking cut all their heads off. Okay, well, not a loaded gun, but you know what I'm talking about. Like, all of these characters, the majority of these characters have the same names as their anime counterparts, but they act like nothing like what they're supposed to be. Like, you might as well just call this something entirely different. Like, this might not even be Cowboy Bebop, because there's just almost everybody in this show is different in a major way, shape, or form outside of Spike Spiegel. Like, at this point in time, why didn't you just do something, like, original and take off of, like, Firefly or do, like, some other, like, sci-fi romp in space with bounty hunters? But no, this had to be Cowboy Bebop, otherwise it wouldn't sell. So we end up getting to Dogstar Swing, which is basically just a mix-up between the second episode of Cowboy Bebop and now that I think about it, surprisingly nothing else. Where it's just, hey, guess what? Uh, So Jet has a kid. He's an estranged father. He has a family that he divorced from, and he's trying to find a gift for his daughter, and he ends up uh, getting this dog from uh, the crime scene and the ending conflict that they have towards Abdul Hakim, who is completely and utterly different by name. Because it's like, oh man, I wanted to kill all these dogs, but they didn't deserve it. They were all so good. And then the, the police fucking shoot him in the face. So it's just, oh yeah, no, we didn't want you cowboys collecting the bounty. It's just like, go back to your ship and just fuck off. It's like, okay, great. So it's like, all right, Jet ends up bringing his daughter a dog and his wife hates it. So they can't keep the dog. And so now Ayn is on the ship. It's like, okay. And I'm thinking, mm, well, eh, eh, Callisto Soul, episode four, it's just kind of you started getting glimpses of the new one because now this is the first major introduction of Faye. You got a bit of Faye in the first episode, but we don't know. We didn't know why she was there. We knew she was a bounty hunter, but now it's like, okay, so now we know that Faye is somebody who brought out of cryogenic sleep and she got scammed and now she's under debt. And now she's trying to find the person who has her identikit because she actually, no, she's not under debt, which is a major thing that happens in the original series. And a major part of a character is that she's a gambler. She's not a gambler in this. So it's like, she's not under debt. And so I understand, like, the only logical thing that she's got going for her, her only goal is to try and find her identikit so she knew who she was before she was put into cryosleep. Uh, but we end up getting that conflicted to possibly one of my least favorite from the original television series, which is, uh, like, the bioweapon. But instead of turning the people into chimps, it turns people into trees, which are just, like, which is one of the grossest additions to the new one because it was like oh god oh god it's like a person turning into a tree and branches are coming out of their limbs and their eyes and their orifices it's like oh my god what sick fuck decided to like bring this in the fucking script it's like and then there's an eco grenade that turns people into trees in the most horrifying and painful way possible it's like okay we can't just turn them into monkeys no it's got to be trees it's got to have an environmental message it's like oh fucking k we'll just make that happen at some point and so Faye ends up finally being able to, like, pick her own destiny here, where she has a lead on the person who has our identikit, but she ends up, like, foregoing it, because if she doesn't stop this missile that's going to be lining up towards the rest of the planet, then, well, there's going to be a lot of people, and she didn't want to have that kind of blood on her hands, and she's, like, a much better person deep down. So she sacrifices her ship, and in a way, I have no fucking idea how she survives, because she clips the wing on the missile, and the missile explodes, and it doesn't detonate because okay so i guess it's kind of disarmed but then she's like in free fall inside of her ship and she's like putting this last memoir and it's like i didn't really like the delivery but kind of like that sort of moment for Faye, where it's like oh she decided to choose the better option she decided to help at potentially the cost of her own life and she's about to careen into a cliff and just die and the last thing she's saying is like, oh, like, seriously, this is my, this is my identity number. If anybody finds this, can somebody please, like, go and try and figure out who I was and who I was in a past life because I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. And she finally just accepts the modicum. And it's like, no, I'm Faye Valentine. I'm Faye Valentine. I'm Faye Valentine. If I want to get to the one positive character change in this entire franchise or in this entire live action adaptation, it's Faye Valentine. Because I understand she's missing a lot from the original television series. But hers was the most welcoming and positive change that I'd seen for the rest of it. Because it's like, if the original Faye was going to deal with like these lethal two-weapon dickheads, 
between like Spike and Jet and their like personality and their dynamic, it's like, yeah, no, she really needed to like crank her own like knock notches up. Like she really needed to like get into the real of it. She must have like she had to get a little more hot headed. She had to be a little more confrontational. Like she had to be able to like match up with the other two guys on this ship. And she does a really good job doing so. And like one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite scenes which doesn't really add too much to the original, but it does like do a really good job for the live action version of Spike and Faye, considering that what was it? It was yeah, it was the next episode. So in Dark Side Tango, it's like, okay, we're going to be getting the Jet Black Past episode and his, you know, his cop buddy betrayed him and he lost an arm for it. But in this case, it's a lot fucking worse considering that not only does he lose his arm, he's pinned as the dirty cop inside of the estate. He gets thrown into jail for five years. His wife leaves him. His daughter has an estranged relationship with him. And by the time he gets back, the only way that he's going to be able to actually go through and live his life is during the way of a bounty hunter. And the fucking, like, one of the head, not detectives, but one of the head chief police officers is the one who's now, like, married to his ex-wife. And it's like, wow, you really got shafted in this one. Like, not only by your character, but just by all the events surrounding you as a whole. Like, Jesus. But yeah, getting back to the better part of it, it's just that Spike and Faye have a conversation. They're trying to figure out, like, what bounties that they want to go after they want to figure out who's the best and it's like no let's go after this guy no that's chump change let's go after the big boy but the big boy literally has killed like five assassins and five bounty hunters already so it's like let's leave it and so they just go back and forth and it's just to this point even though Faye like nearly killed herself saving like a planet as well as like jet and spike he still doesn't believe that she's a competent bounty hunter to the degree where it's like, okay, well, so now they're just going to go back and forth. It's like, this is the biggest bounty I got. Well, this is the bounty that I got. It's like, oh, you see this injury on my ab? I got bitten there. And it's like, oh, yeah, you see this, like, bullet hole on, like, my shoulder and my bicep? This is from this one dude. And then Faye finally ends up getting the upper hand on Spike because she gets a bounty that Spike can't compete with. And he has no way to respond. He's absolutely floored. It's like, that was you? You were the one that ended up putting him away? Like, how is that even possible? Like, seven syndicate assassins went after this guy, and there was absolutely no way that they could touch him at all. Like, he was completely unstoppable. There was absolutely no way. Like, how'd you do it? And it's like, well, I got close to him because he liked to tango. And, like, seeing her, like, slowly but surely disarm the the dude's, like, entire arsenal, it's like, there goes the knife, there goes the bomb, there goes the grenade, there goes the guns, there goes the submachine guns, there goes the extra ammo, and she completely disarms him entirely until she finally takes out his brass knuckles and knocks him out with one punch, and it's like, damn! And, like, not only is spike impressed with this like i'm impressed with this too it's like okay cool cool like now we can now everybody can understand it's like oh yeah no you're a completely t- uh capable bounty hunter like everything lining up to this it's like oh fantastic uh but yeah and it's just like these two episodes episodes five and episode six so five is dark side tango and six with binary two-step so we end up just those are probably the two best episodes of the series in my opinion which isn't saying a lot, but at least for this one day, I en- somewhat enjoyed watching the live-action Cowboy Bebop. And so it's it's a little weird considering that this is the one where they end up trying to find a bounty on Londis, who was the dude that had the cult in the original series, and in- instead of Faye being in trouble, it's Spike being in trouble, and so they have to figure out a way to go all the way back to Earth and like find this one like rig that's sending out a signal that's going to completely and utterly take over Spike's consciousness and kill him in the process just completely and utterly out of nowhere like it's it's a really weird like way how like how this entire like thing is set up it's just like I, I don't know I, I did kind of like the effects going through and Spike having consistently try and save Julia even though he fails over and over and over again and the ultimate end to it is that if Spike lets go of Julia, he he lets go of his consciousness is one thing that he has left in this, his life to live for, but he is finally able to hold out and keeping it at bay for the longest time before the rest of the Bebop crew are finally able to head down to Earth and destroy Londis's capsule. And so it's like... Everybody's going to point out, it's like, oh, why did Faye sleep with a woman? It's like, there's no fucking way she was a lesbian, let alone by in the original series. It's like, dude... This isn't this isn't the Faye that you know, and I really don't give a shit. So it's just kind of like, oh, Faye slept with a woman. It's like, all right, totally fine. Like, there's l- literally no reason to get up in arms about this. It's like, yeah, totally fine. 
And so it was just kind of cool, considering that originally at the beginning of the episode, Spike is holding this picture of him and Julia, and that he's never finally admitting to both us and to, like, everybody else in the series, where it's just kind of like he will never let go of his feelings for her. And then we start getting to the uh, degrading stuff, and we finally, like, we hit our peaks with 5 and 6, and it starts to go downhill as well with 7 onwards, considering that we finally have the opportunity in episode 7 for the woman who ended up conning Faye out of her benefits after she ended up getting out of cryosleep. As long as she gets a ride and pretends to be her mother, then at least that's the case, and she'll be able to go through and be able to get her identikit. So in this case... I kind of find the entire scenario hilarious, even though it would never work in the original Cowboy Bebop, the fact that the woman who's a con artist is trying to get out of this, like, harrowing relationship between this arms dealer, but at the end of the day, it was literally just her and the arms dealer, like, living out this ridiculous sexual fantasy about, like, a game of cat and mouse. It's like, oh, I'm gonna kill you. It's like, yeah, you're gonna kill me. It's like, yes, I want to catch you. It's like, yeah, you want to catch me. It's like, ugh. And, like, the same deal as Faye. Like, Faye and all of us are just, like, thinking the same thing. It's like, get me the fuck out of here. I don't want any semblance to do with this fucking scenario. Except, which is kind of ridiculous that it does take, like, Faye seven episodes to get her own ship and so she finally ends up getting the ship that she had in the original series and it's like okay so we got spike's swordfish we got phase um ah oh, geez what's it called i don't even know it was literally just whitney's ship but now it's like we end up going through and we're like leading towards the climax of the series considering that we get to julia and vicious's relationship and it's falling apart because vicious is not only a psychopath but he's also a like he has no empathy at all, and he's a daddy's boy, and he gets angry really easily, and it's a really shitty relationship, and Julia has just no intention of staying there. So the fact that Vicious is trying to lead a coup, and he's already set up this coup, but now Julia wants the person that Vicious is allied to to kill him in the first place, it's like, okay, yeah, we're gonna see how this goes. Because we finally get 8, 9, and 10. So 8 is a really, really, really off episode. I mean, we get... We get you know, a really touching, like, part, considering that both Jet and Spike end up, like, giving Faye a birthday, because it's like, yeah, you don't know what your past is, but it's like, hey, we'll, like, start now. It's like, this is going to be your birthday. It's like, oh, yeah, cool. And then we get the introduction to Pierre LeFou, who is still a soldier, who is still brainwashed through Red Eye, who is still, like, posed as a biological weapon, but he's a mercenary, and he gets put into the contract of Vicious to go kill Spike. And apparently he hates dogs. And we tell you that he hates dogs because there are dogs kept trapped in cages. And whenever the dogs bark, he gets really uncomfortable and really annoying. And whenever the dogs go quiet, he really appreciates that. So it's like, do you really understand why this dude hates dogs? It's like, you should really know that this guy hates dogs because it's going to be really important at a later point in time that this guy doesn't like dogs. No subtlety. And so we finally end up getting the fight between Spike and Pierre LeFou, and it's just like a much smaller set inside of what it should be a, a theme park, but it's such a fucking small scale that you can't even like compare it to the original. And it's just kind of like, there were times that I thought that this guy was threatening, but like never never even close to being, like, brought up to his original counterpart, where it's just kind of like, man, it, this is just completely pointless. And also the way that Spike just ends up doing away with him is just kind of like, okay, I knifed him, he's crying, he wants his mommy, but there was no, at no point at any, like, semblance of the dialogue in the introduction of Paralafu at the ending, or at the beginning of this episode, do they say, oh, well, because of all the experiments we brought him under, he now has this childlike innocence that has been reverting him more and more as he, like, grows older. And it's like, no, we didn't end up getting in any information. So to anybody, like, watching this episode for the first time is like, why the fuck is this, like, hardened serial killer mercenary soldier fucking crying and begging for his mother after he gets stabbed once? And it's just, okay... Spike, how are you going to do away with him? I'm going to turn on his floating boots and he's going to float up to the sky. All's well, ends well, and we never see him again. Okay. And then, for some reason, uh, Gren ends up, like, picking up Spike in the aftermath because Spike almost gets blown up and he gets brought back to the bar and Anna's there. And, oh my god, Anna and Gren are just figments. They're not even close 
to relating resembling anything related they just share the same names like they're they're not the characters that you know they just share the same name as the other ones because it's just kind of like look if they were trying to figure out casting and you thought that the most notable and important part about gren's character in the original series was that he was androgynous that he was caught between a man and a woman and that he was trans or however you want to describe him and it's like you know what his drug-induced trans like <laughs> trans transformation is the most important part about Gren's character and that's what we're going to be focusing on and putting him in as like in this live action series it's like is that really progressive in any sort of way where it's like okay who is he it's like all right well he's the head of the bar we're one of the heads of the bar he's trans does does he play a saxophone? No. Does he have hair? Does he have long hair? No. Does he have a decent relationship with Spike and Julia? No. Uh, so he's just the head runner of the bar, second to Anna. It's like yeah, and it's like Anna was this like low run character that was Spike's like last connection to with the syndicate, and it's like no, now she just runs the bar, runs the major syndicate bar. Just absolutely no connection at all. Or it's like, oh yeah, well, technically she's in the syndicate. It's like, no, she hates the syndicate. I don't know, man. Like, there's absolutely no connection between these characters. Besides one major point. And it's Anna's relationship to Spike and the fact that Gren is trans. And it's like, you couldn't really do anything else with them. Is that going to be your major selling point for this character? Is that going to be the only reason why you're going through? So you're going to be passive, progressive? Like, come on, man. Like, give like give these characters, give these actors more respect. Christ. So yeah, guess what? Uh, Vicious is now going to be coming after Spike and the rest of the dudes because we get one, like, majority original episode of the series. And that's episode nine because we end up going through the past relationship between Spike and Vicious and how they met Julia and how they were rising up in the ranks and how Vicious was able to go through and try and figure out what he was doing through, doing with his life, which is not a lot, because he's incredibly fucking dangerous to everybody outside of himself, and not dangerous in the original, like, vicious, and with a vengeance, and he's really poignant, and he's really cunning, and he, like, scares the shit out of you on screen. It's like, no, he just throws tantrums. Like, like that is the that is the vicious from the live-action series. He throws tantrums, and that's it. He's got a silver spoon up his ass, his dad's the head of the syndicate, and he's got a lot of daddy issues, and he can't do anything right, and he just can't keep his shit together unless Spike's there. And even when Spike's there, he still is able to fuck it up in some capacity. So yeah, it's just like Vicious is able to go through with his coup. And he is able to like live through the backstab. And he goes back to Julia. And he's like, okay, I'm going to drag you through the mud. I'm going to make you feel pain. I'm going to make you feel new pain. Such pain that you've never felt before in your life. And then I'm going to do it some more. It's like how this dude tries to be threatening is some of the most laughable pieces of dialogue I've heard in my entire goddamn life. There was never at any point in Vicious's entire introduction to his entire character, to his entire run in this entire live-action series. That he was ever threatening, that he was never on top of a situation, that he was ever in some point in control. Until the final episode where they ripped that control out from underneath him because of Julia. So, let's get to Julia. Live-action Julia. Julie, I think I might just call her because she's just totally different. So, Julie isn't threatening at all like she's okay threatening is not the proper way she's not competent at least you knew that the original julia was competent because she used to be a part of the syndicate she knows how to drive she knows how to operate a gun she knows how to do a hit she's dangerous and calculated to a degree this julie is just a up-and-coming singer that got really good uh like performances and really good shots at the bar that operates through the syndicate Vicious was the first one to quarter, and then Vicious becomes a completely ridiculous and, like, over-the-top and apathetic, ridiculously, like, over-the-top boyfriend, and he can't keep his act together, and he literally just takes Spike, he tells Spike to, it's like, look, just get Julie out of here, I'm gonna take care of this scumbag that I didn't kill in the first place. It's like, okay, well, you, A, you're an idiot, because that's going to throw you and the entire syndicate into chaos, and then it's like, B... 
Spike basically saw her sing once, got told stories about her for the rest of it, like did a really shitty dance number, went out to a nightclub on the same night, and then they bang. And then that, apparently that sex was so goddamn good that Spike wanted to, like, it threw Spike's entire worldview into chaos because it's like, oh my god, now I have something to live for. Now there's absolutely somebody that I can give my entire life for. I'm I'm gonna run away. I'm gonna leave the syndicate. I'm gonna be on the run for the rest of my life because I love you and there's nothing that can tear us apart. Like, goddamn dude, was that one night that good? Was she that ridiculous? Because everything else related to her character says otherwise. Because, like, holy shit, it's just, she's not, like, all she's able to do in the first nine episodes is just play the scared part. She has no agency. She has absolutely no control in any scenario that she's in. She tries to get some semblance of control to try and get Vicious out of the picture once you realize that Spike's alive. That doesn't work out. And so she's just thrown up into this car where she's going to be dragged off to Vicious and they're going to have the absolute worst time of their lives. But then for some reason, because one of the only bodyguards that Vicious has had ever since, like, Julia and Spike got together all those years ago, they've had the same bodyguard. And so she pleads to this one bodyguard that it's like, you were there, you knew how bad he was. And if I could do it, I would pick Spike and I would do it all over again because there's nothing else I can do. And this fucking bodyguard just goes out of their way to careen the car, like, and flip the car on the road to just let her be free. It's like, you're right, go be with him. It's like, what the fuck? And so now we get to the final showdown, which is basically similar to the showdown between Spike and Vicious, except Faye's no longer the one who's the damsel in distress. It's Jet's daughter. And so they save both Jet and they save her daughter and they get her out. And Faye's like, I, I like it because they reverse it and Faye's the one that gets the guys out of trouble this time. It's like, oh yeah, cool. And then Spike goes back into the cathedral and he fights off all the bad guys and he faces Vicious down in this one-on-one -on -one at the very top with this big stain, uh, like glass painting in the background and they're fighting and they do the thing where they point their gun and they point their sword at each other and they go verbatim word for word you should see what you look like right now spike those are the eyes of a ravenous beast the blood that hunts for the blood of others i've bled all that blood away then why are you still alive and it's just the it's it's like a youtube poop it's like a it's like a play it's a stage action it's just like Drama students going through and trying to, re like, reenact this legendary scene, and nobody can do it justice. Nobody works out. And then the final nail in the coffin of this series, the final axe to being like, we're doing something new, we're going to be doing something off the rails, and these are not going to be the same characters that you know, and did you love those characters? Well, fuck you, then it's going to be something entirely different except for Spike. Julia. No, sorry. Julie is now going to be the big bad of season two. Because this one random girl who got into... Ugh, who got into this bar run by the syndicate who wanted to be a star and to sing and to get up on stage is now going to be the head, the de facto head of the syndicate. Well, not really, because she's going to keep Vicious alive, because Vicious is now the de facto head of the syndicate, because he killed all the elders, but now Julie is going to be the one pulling the strings. Julie's going to be the one to head this literal, several-planet-wide, like, mafioso syndicate, and she's going to be the brains behind the operation. She's got the wits, she's got the know-how, she's got the knowledge to bring everybody to their knees, because she was a singer. That's it. No other extraneous skill set. She was an up-and-coming singer, and now she's going to be the one pulling the strings behind the new syndicate head. She just hates Spike because she left him... Or no, he left her all those years ago. She 
didn't or he didn't come for her he just left her there and left her to wither and rot at vicious's side and you didn't come for me you knew i was alive why didn't you do it why didn't you come and help me why didn't you come and at least blow through all of the syndicate agents that you were able to go through that one night because it was like the dude completely wiped out an entire cantina of a rival factor. It's like, no, Spike could have totally done that at any point in time, where it was just kind of like, oh yeah, well, they wouldn't have been able to run. Well, it's like, wouldn't have fucking made a difference, because throughout episode one onwards, they've been being chased by the syndicate. So nobody getting into this series is like, well, it's going to change. Well, it's not going to change. It's like, yeah, you're not wrong. So why am I supposed to care? You're not. Why did she shoot Spike? spike as he fell out of the fucking window it's like because the producers wanted to recreate the fucking legendary scene from episode five of the original series because the homage that they did was executed poorly and the new plot points that's going to be bleeding into the next coming of this series which is going to be the second season which due to how much like, not, it's not getting a positive light on Netflix. It's, it's like 50-50. It's incredibly divisive. But the fact that it's still like breaking the top 10 on Netflix, that people are still watching this show, is like, I wouldn't be surprised if it got a second season. I wouldn't be surprised if it's already in pre-production right now. But like, dude, nothing in this series like gave me any hope for anything they're, they're going to bring on the second season. And like, the people who were, uh, like critiquing it, at least on Reddit, kind of, like, rustled by Jimmy's, considering that it was just kind of, like, almost the majority of the criticism that they had to give, like, after the final episode aired, was, like, the 30 seconds of how they introduced Ed, just Radical Ed, and now Ayn is with Ed for some reason, and it's just like, oh my god, Ed is terrible, oh my god, it's just absolutely the worst possible thing, it's like, why the hell did they even try, like, why do they even bring Ed to this, like, final, like, segment of the original series, and it's just, really, of Everything that just transpired over the last 10 episodes, the 30 seconds of Edward being on screen was the straw that broke the camel's back for you. That was the major issue of this series, of everything that went wrong, of everything that was mal-handled, everything that was just dragged through the mud. Nah, man, I, I thought Ed was shit. Give me karma. It's like, fuck Every single one of you. I understand that you're angry. I understand that Edward was the only thing on screen in the final seconds of that, of the first season that you could project your anger towards. But if it's like the only criticism that you could give this entire fucking series is lol Edward bad, you shouldn't even be given the right to type out any form of criticism to fucking anything because you have absolutely no fucking way to try and abstractly like give any sort of con any sort of constructive criticism to anything related to the series. Fuck. The majority of the stuff that made me angry, the majority of the stuff that made me disappointed, just there were glimpses of light. There were parts of this series that I enjoyed. And I thought that they could expand upon and be made better. But the vast majority of stuff that came out of this series, if I was ever going to rewatch it, it would be a drinking game. I don't think it is Tommy Wiseau, the room-like levels of camp and malpractice and just absolute ridiculousness, but you are never going to be catching me watching this live-action version sober. It's never going to happen. So yeah, it's, I don't know, it's it really, really tough to try and, like, figure out where to go from here, because it seems like it's getting enough press and notoriety that Netflix will, like, renew it for a second season, but I don't even know, man. I would need somebody to watch this with, or I would need a fuck ton of liquor to get me through whatever second season may come throughout this series, which is really unfortunate. It was expected, but... It's unfortunate and disappointing nonetheless. Uh, but I'll leave you on this note. It wasn't the... It might have been the worst thing that I had watched that week, but through the law of equivalent exchange, I was able to watch something, not only with friends, but watch the final act of episodes 
I was able to consume and enjoy and process and react to one of my favorite viewing experiences in recent memory. Part of it was due to the fact that I was able to watch it with friends. Part of it was able to due to the fact that I had the time to catch up before the last set of episodes came out. And it was in contrast to my experience watching the live-action Cowboy Bebop, one of the most positive and resounding and successful and bombastic conclusions to a season of television that I've watched in a while. And I will get to that next time. So thanks for sticking around for at least the Cowboy Bebop discussions for the rest of it. This might be the last time I talk about it until, you know, at some point in time in the future that they actually do decide to bring this out. But I promise that next week I will be more positive and I will be able to bring something of much higher quality and a much higher piece of recommendation to the show. Thanks for joining me. Cheers.